Hi, I'm Riley Fessler. I'm a podcast producer here at the DSR Network, which means that my job is to make sure that we have great content and great guests across all of our shows. Our programming is supported by our members, and for that, we are truly grateful. I hope that you'll consider becoming a member to support the work that we do. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for nearly all of our shows, early access to episodes, enhanced show notes, and access to our exclusive DSR Slack and Discord communities. Membership is just $7 per month or $70 per year. To become a member, please visit thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of We're All Gonna Die Radio. Uh, My name is John Wolfstall. I'm your co-host, along with Heather Williams. Hello, Heather. Hi, John. I am so excited for today's conversation. Really, really looking forward to it. You're always excited for Friday doom and gloom conversations, Heather. But this this is particularly exciting since it's such an international We're All Gonna Die Radio. Um, We have uh, transatlantic dialogues going on today with Heather, myself, and our guest, uh, Jamie Kwong. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Definitely transatlantic, but not with a British accent. So. Yes, right. So we, we, it's like the best of it's like the worst of being in London, but without the cool accent. So you don't yeah. sound as smart as some of our other, you know, British uh, tainted ghosts. Um, so uh, we, uh, Heather and I were talking this week about what to discuss um, uh, on this week's broadcast. And uh, I don't know if you're on the internet, if you're on the web, if you're on Twitter, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. And there was this funny little thing that just happened this week. Um, all of a sudden, the U.S. nuclear facility at Pantex near Amarillo, Texas, started tweeting things like, there's a gigantic fire and we're shutting down and we need all of our employees to build fire breaks. And if you work at Pantex, don't come in today because there's a giant fire. And I I don't know, Heather, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but when one of the largest U.S. nuclear facilities that's responsible for assembling and disassembling U.S. nuclear weapons, starts tweeting that there's a giant fire. I don't know. I, I sort of take notice of this. Did this come across your radar screen? You know, it did. Uh, I, I heard about this thing. Uh, I, I, too, uh, use the Internet. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it came up. Um, and I think on the one hand, yeah, pretty concerning, pretty terrifying. Maybe not the best strategic communications by whoever manages that Twitter account. Uh, but also kind of flags, I mean, you know, we talk about all the ways that we're going to die and climate change and nuclear weapons are up there. And so now we've got, it's all kind of, it's coming together, John. It's all coming together. Heather, you know, we didn't even script this and it's so perfect because this is exactly the segue that I had. So as you know, we talk about horrible things that will kill us all, climate change being one of them, autonomous robots, We, you know, we, we like to 
sprinkle in a little bit of sort of, you know, uh, crazy autonomy and nuclear weapons. And this is one of those issues that not only do they intersect, but we just happen to know the world's leading expert on this intersection between climate change and how it's affecting the global landscape, literally the landscape, and U.S. nuclear weapons complex. And Jamie happens to have written extensively on this. So, Jamie, I'm sort of curious, what was the first thing that came through your mind when you heard that Pantex might be on fire? Yeah, well, thank you for the kind introduction. I don't know if I'd go that far, but definitely have been doing some thinking at the climate change nuclear weapons nexus, that's for sure. So when the news of Pantex broke, you know, being based in London, I was actually asleep. So woke up to the Twitter world, um, you know, discussing this quite crazily. And, you know, what comes to mind first is I wasn't particularly concerned about the nuclear weapons or material on site, right? A lot of this gets classified fast, but I presume that there's already numerous safety and security measures in place. You know, for example, if there are weapons there at the time, I'm sure they're stored in underground vaults, that type of thing. That, you know, those security measures will also help insulate them from a climate change challenge like wildfires. My concern and what this really highlights is your point, John, you know, this is the only assembly and disassembly facility in the U.S. nuclear enterprise, right? In that sense, it's a single point of failure. So had the wildfire kind of ripped through the site, really disrupted operations, and, you know, if there was significant damage, that could have disrupted operations for an extended period of time. So it's particularly concerning that, you know, this single point of failure could have been entirely stopped uh, for probably months on end. So, uh, Jamie, you, um, you're very insightful. And, I, and I'm not joking. I mean, your work on this has really been groundbreaking. But you have far too much optimism and confidence in the U.S. nuclear weapons complex. I've actually been at Pantex. Um, and while they do have incredible safety procedures, it is uh, incredibly safe. It is incredibly well protected. They did not anticipate the things that we are that we're now addressing, and so it's not a question of whether Department of Energy or the you know, National Nuclear Security Administration or before the Atomic Energy Commission um, was smart or thoughtful. It's just we are now facing consequences that we never anticipated, and so a lot of the stuff actually is not underground. Um, they are there are cement bunkers. The facilities themselves are designed to withstand conventional explosions and attacks. So there are. Um, uh, safeguards in place, but it's not clear to me that they've ever anticipated, say, wildfires um, or some of the consequences. And quite frankly, if you're talking about wildfires, you're going to have to have firefighters coming to protect your facility. You're not allowed onto Pantex unless you are cleared, unless you have security background checks. And in the middle of a wildfire, you don't necessarily have time to screen. So there are all these sort of interesting dynamics, uh, aside from the Twitter world, which was just like, okay, this is going to be the best fireworks show uh, in the history of Texas. Um, so it, given that you've done this work, Jamie, and you obviously didn't just look at one facility, I, I wonder if you could just sort of share with us some examples where already we're seeing climate change have impacts on the U.S. nuclear weapons complex? Because I've read through a bunch of your work. There are some things I don't think people have necessarily thought about, and then we can get to sort of looking ahead over the decades what the larger impacts might be. Sure, yeah. Two specific examples come to mind. Um, so as you mentioned, I've done some work in this area. I specifically looked at bases that host the different delivery systems, so each leg of the triad. So when I was looking at the sea base leg, I looked at Kings Bay Naval Base down in Georgia. Um, and there, of course, that's the Atlantic 
uh, home of the SSBN fleet, ballistic missile submarine fleet, and it's vulnerable to sea level rise, which I think is quite obvious. What is a little less obvious is not only do we see the potential for sea level rise and projected rises to really affect the you know facilities at the waterfront, but we also see potentials for kind of annual flooding and sea level rise combined to disrupt the connection between the on-base missile facite, missile site and uh, the the facilities at the waterfront. So that in and of itself is concerning. Then you think about last fall, we had Hurricane Adelia, where Kings Bay itself had to hunker down because it was originally projected to be in the path of the hurricane. Luckily, the hurricane managed to avoid the base. um, And so in that sense, we missed a potential disaster there. But if you have an SSBN based there at the time, that poses significant challenges to what's often referred to as the most survivable leg of the triad. Now, I I forget, is this the hurricane that they wanted Trump to use nuclear weapons against, or was this a different hurricane? I think a different hurricane. Yeah, it's so oh, hard. It's so hard to keep oh, was track. It? Right? I'm not sure. I mean, if Trump, yeah, Trump wanted to chase the hurricane. That's right. I forgot about that. Right, you forget about nuking the hurricane. It's yeah. Heather, you know, you gotta you gotta keep up with these. I, I I really do. Um, if I can jump in, Jamie, with um, I want to pull on some of the stuff from Pantex, but also what you just said, and two things really jump out at me at this intersection of climate change. And, and nuclear weapons and the nuclear enterprise more broadly. And so, you know, the enterprise includes the labs. It includes places like Pantex. Um, it, it includes the delivery bases like you've talked about. Um, and so the, the two things that are really jumping out at me, the first is that there's just no warning. Like you can't predict when a hurricane is going to hit in exactly that spot and could have, you know, incredibly, um, like, really, really catastrophic consequences. Like the the fire in Texas, you know, um, it was supposedly the biggest in the state's history. It killed two people. Apparently it killed a whole lot of cattle as well. Um, but um, that you just can't really predict these things. And so, you know, to John's point about the challenges of really trying to prevent or protect uh, for these things is is going to be really difficult. And then the second point is just how disruptive it is. And it sounds like it could be disruptive in a lot of different ways. So as you said, with Pantex, you know, this could just shut down all operations and all of a sudden the U.S. no longer has this type of facility for, um, for nuclear dismantlement. Um, but it, I mean, that's just one of the multiple ways in which it could be disruptive. Um, and so just, I mean, any, any reactions to that? Are those two of the things that worry you about all this? Or is there something much scarier that I haven't, that I haven't yet thought of in my dark brain on this topic? Yeah, no, I think these are definitely two of the things I worry about. So on the warning point, you know, in conducting this research, my background, as you both know, is in nuclear weapons. So I had to learn a whole lot about climate change, still have a whole lot to learn about climate change. Uh, but one of the things that quickly came up is, yeah, we can't predict a lot of this, right? We have projections, things like rising temperatures, rising sea levels, we can better project along, you know, the 2100 timeline. But some of these extreme events like wildfires, like hurricanes, like flash floods, we just don't know when they're coming. Um, And we know that climate change is exacerbating the risks of them, and that we're seeing, you know, more once in a century types of events occurring but it's hard to anticipate. And so I think in that sense, you know, as we're modernizing our arsenal, as we're revamping the nuclear enterprise, we really need to be considering all of this, right? And building in these climate considerations as part of these efforts, you know, whether that's something as simple as assessing, 
okay, do we need to include more built and natural infrastructure solutions to this problem, whether that's, you know, fire resistant vegetation, flood walls, what have you? And is it also asking more fundamental questions of, you know, can some of the activities that we're doing here really be sustained in some of these more vulnerable spots, vulnerable, you know, in the climate change sense. And, you know, I think Texas and Pantex is one of the big questions we need to ask because it's the only site. And because Texas is already and will continue to be subjected to some of the most extreme weather hazards in the U.S., right? We know that in a climate change sense. Um, To your point about, you know, these disruptions, there's lots of different ways to see these disruptions. I agree. And so part of my research, I was trying to highlight what some of these could be, right? So we have the Kings Bay example, which again, is a little bit more obvious and intuitive because I think climate change, we often think sea level rise. It was also important for me to look at some of our landlocked bases, right? So I looked at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota, where in 2011, we already saw an extreme flood event disrupt operations at the base. And that actually had a larger implication for the silo field, right? You know, you have the base itself, but then you have acres and acres of missile alert facilities and actual launch facilities and such. And in this sense, you actually had the flood disrupt access roads. And a lot of these are, you know, dirt roads that are already challenged because we have such large maintenance equipment going down them, what have you. That simply just can't happen, right? If you have any of these uh, giant floods really blocking the way. And so in that sense, it's a maintenance challenge, which then poses risks to what happens if one of the weapons goes offline because of this, let alone getting into some of the more classified concerns around water infiltration challenges, that type of thing. Uh, So, you know, I think there's definitely a handful of issues here that we need to think through and really build some of these climate adaptation measures in as we're currently working on our modernization efforts. So it sounds like um, your research, which all sounds really fantastic. I agree with John. This is like an avenue of thinking that just has not been fully explored. And so it's really important and and pathbreaking. Your research, understandably, is mostly focused on the U.S. side and U.S. bases. Have you started looking at all at other countries and how climate change might affect them? Or are there any, you know, flashpoint regions that you think could be particularly impacted by this? Yes, great question. Glad you asked it. As always, you always ask great questions. Um, So short answer, John, you too. You too. (laughs) Oh, no, he doesn't need to hear that. Thank you, Jamie, for the call. He's fishing. Heather does ask great questions. There's no doubt about it. Uh, So in terms of what I've actually written about, uh, colleagues and I at Carnegie have tackled this question in the NATO context, actually. So we were looking at the NATO nuclear sharing arrangement, so the dual capable aircraft mission, essentially, and looking at how wildfires, extreme temperatures and flash floods could pose challenges to the bases that not only host US-4 deployed weapons in Europe, but also these aircraft that are meant to carry these weapons in a nuclear contingency. That, again, obviously, though, has a lot of U.S. equities. I think part of your question is, is this a U.S.-specific problem? And the answer is no. Um, You know, I think North Korea and Pakistan are two particular flashpoints, not to use that word, too. Um, But, you know, where we've already seen kind of extreme floods in particular devastate swaths of these countries, right? And that includes their nuclear facilities. And in Pakistan, you not only have the weapons facilities, but also the civil facilities. And so those are two places where I'm particularly concerned. Um, We've also seen in Russia, wildfires have historically threatened ICBM sites. 
India, the coastal nuclear facilities are projected to face more intense cyclones. So I certainly think this is a global problem. I think challenge or climate change is going to challenge all nuclear armed states arsenals. See, I, I don't know about you, both of you, but I, I'm actually amazed that this hasn't been factored in already. You know, day after tomorrow came out in the early 2000s, it was clear that we were going to have, you know, wolves on ships rolling down, you know, Fifth Avenue. And so that we haven't anticipated, uh, you know, flooding of uh, silos, permafrost melting and making silos unstable. Um, but if that wasn't enough, if I remember correctly, there's also some heavy flooding at U.S. Strategic Command a couple of years ago. Um, that I think damaged either one of the new buildings or flooded one of the um, the runways. Is that right, Jamie? Yeah. So Stratcom headquarters itself is actually a bit more elevated on the base. So the, the headquarters was okay. So in that sense, the command and control node of the U.S. arsenal was insulated from this flood. But as you say, the runway, about a quarter of the runway was absolutely inundated. And so that meant we saw the emergency evacuation of aircraft. All other aircraft there were grounded. And, you know, since there's been a huge reconstruction effort that I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but has been hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and so I think that's a really good example of how Air Force bases, you know, especially our bomber bases, when we're talking about the nuclear mission, are vulnerable to some of these climate challenges. If you can't get a bomber off the ground, then it can't serve its purpose in a nuclear contingency, right? And even if you can get the bomber off, if, you know, let's say it's a rapid flood, a flash flood, what have you, you may not be able to get, you know, pair the warhead that's stored on base with the aircraft that's supposed to carry that warhead in a contingency. And so there are these questions that need to be had. So it, as you can understand, this is why we were eager to have Jamie on because she's been thinking about this. And I, I've got a cup. I mean, I have a bunch of questions, not as good as Heather's, of course. But I mean, one is, as we've discussed on this program before, the US is in the middle, okay, maybe the early middle or the late start of a massive 30-year modernization program for its U.S. nuclear arsenal. And it's not just building new submarines and new bombers, but building new command and control and new silos. Jimmy, in your research, have you been able to sort of penetrate some of the layers of this to understand whether they're actually factoring in climate change projections into the modernization? Because this is already going to cost, I don't know, I think less, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, Heather? It's going to cost over a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to maintain our arsenal and to modernize it. Um, but the cost implications of climate change, you would imagine, are significant if they're not factored in at the beginning. Mm. If I can um, kind of tease that out even a little bit more, I mean, has there been any conversations about moving any of these bases or facilities around to try to better protect them against climate change? Because I mean, I would imagine that would be a whole other level of cost. You know, it's not just the 20 bucks that we're talking about here. Uh, so that's that seems like one one potential solution, but a pretty extreme one. Yeah. And, you know, to to that point first, where do you move it? Right. As I was trying to emphasize here, when we're thinking about our inland facilities, there aren't really that many places that will be insulated from some of these climate change challenges. And so 
is moving it an option. Um, I don't know if that's a reasonable option for all of the cost considerations you lay out, but also on the climate side. Um, but I'm glad you brought up the modernization program, John. You know, that was really kind of the context for me pursuing this research in the first place, right? You know, I was thinking, okay, we're modernizing this arsenal to ensure that it can last for decades. We're trying to anticipate changing geopolitical circumstances, but that timeline is quite it tracks very much onto the climate change conversation, right? And are we accounting for geophysical changes? And, you know, I think in, as part of my research, I was trying to dive into some of these questions as is going on with the current modernization program. So the Sentinel program in particular, which is the program to update our ICBM force, they the Air Force released a huge environmental impact statement. I'm talking thousands of pages worth of analysis. What's interesting, though, is, and quite importantly, you know, it, an environmental impact statement is required for any major federal action. What that's supposed to do is say, okay, you know, we're undertaking this huge effort to replace, redo a lot of these missile alert facilities, launch facilities, what have you. How is that going to impact the local community? What does it mean for everything from vegetation and, you know, animals in the area to the local population? We don't do the opposite, though. We don't have a, well, what does a changing environment mean for the lifetime of this program? And so that was actually one of my recommendations coming out of the research is that we need to be thinking about both, right? The reverse relationship as well. And I think it's exactly right that a lot of that should be a cost-driven conversation. If we can implement some of these mitigation adaptation measures as part of the development process rather than have to be responsive later on, I'm sure we'll save, you know, millions of dollars. And I go back to the Stratcom example, again, without the figures in front of me, um, but at off at Air Force Base, there had been calls to better insulate the base to build up the flood wall, which would have cost pennies compared to, you know, the thousands that have been spent on redoing this runway. So, it, you know, it, when we're not thinking about horrible scenarios and doom and gloom, my brain sometimes attracts other factoids. And one of them that I remember from the last couple of years is learning that when the federal government provides flood assistance to areas that have been hit by flooding, that money can only be spent to replace and repair back to the previous state. It is illegal for that money to actually be spent on projecting what the impacts of flooding might be and to improve the resiliency of the location against future flooding. I don't know where that law came from and why it's interpreted that way, but I wonder whether there's actually a very similar effort problem here where we're sort of building in this modernization program, but we're we always talk about the fact, or the US government talks about the fact we're not we're not really upgrading, we're just replacing one for one, even though obviously we're gonna make it safer, we're gonna make it more accurate, we're gonna make it more responsive, but whether we're actually building in what is the environment going to look like in 30 years or 50 years, because these systems do last that long. Um, and we're factoring that in. My guess, knowing the US government the way I do, is that we haven't, uh, and that the costs for that are basically somebody else's problem. But the anticipation is that that is going to add to the already significant price tag. Um, and then for moving, Heather, you know, uh, you're I love that you're so optimistic that you know we might actually move these facilities. I guess there are some states that might be willing to sort of jump up and take them, um, but I'm not sure like putting them in, say, Florida, uh, likely to be mostly underwater is really the best idea. So as Jamie said, where do you move them? 
Yeah, and on this, you know, the FEMA and flood question as well, one of the interesting data points, this gets quite in the weeds, that came up out of my research is I was, again, looking at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. The FEMA flood map data that they use to assess, you know, your home's flood risk, it doesn't cover all of North Dakota. There are gaps, including in the Minot missile base area. Um, And so that's a key concern too. And so are there partnerships to be had where DOD maybe can help fund part of FEMA's flood collection data efforts and then ensure that this this effort to track climate challenges are dynamic, right? We have to continually update this data. You know, we have to keep going back and seeing how our projections are changing, hopefully on the positive side, if states can, you know, get their act together and help make sure that the worst climate projections we're seeing don't come to fruition, but also the opposite. And also, you know, if at a local level, bases can undertake some of these mitigation adaptation efforts, does that help deter some of these large climate challenges from actually coming to fruition? I just had this image of, you know, Secretary Austin, when he asked for, you know, DOD coffee up the money, patting his pockets, be like, oh, no, sorry, you know, Adam, I don't have, don't have that $40 million for that study right now. Because <laughs> of that thing. So uh, speaking of paying up, uh, this is the part on, uh, you like that, Heather? The smooth, nice right? transition. Um, nice. This is, this is the part on We're All Gonna Die Radio where we have to take a break uh, and we thank all of our listeners um, and where we um, will invite our uh, members uh, of the Deep State Radio Network to stay with us. We're going to have a further conversation. Jamie's going to tell us about her projections on what's the next base to get hit. So if you really want to know where not to plan your vacation, um, you really should become a member. You can go to deepstateradio.com. You not only get to get access to the rest of this podcast, but all of the great podcasts that David Rothkoff and DSR put together. Uh, If you're not a member, please join up. Um, But unfortunately, we will say goodbye to you now. Uh, and uh, you might end up in a place that, quite frankly, uh, next year's vacation may not work out so well for you. So uh, it's really a very small investment to make sure that your vacation is a good one. So uh, thanks for listening, and for our membership, just bear with us for a minute. 